Well, let me invite you to remain standing out of joy for God to speak to you His life-giving Word through His Spirit and by His Word. And turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 12. If you don't happen to have a Bible, it's always useful to have uh, one open as we examine it together as God's people every Lord's Day morning. And so you can grab one of the blue Bibles that should be in a chair back in front of you and turn to page 871 as this morning we turn our attention to verses 13 through 34 of Luke chapter 12. And kids, as I read the text, I want you to pay attention to a couple words that you should see. Uh, See when Jesus talks about life and see what he has to say about treasure. Because in this passage this morning, in a very real sense, he means to correct us maybe or help us understand what life's true treasure is. So let me read our text for us and then uh, pray for God to bless our study and then we will uh, begin. Let us hear now. For God is speaking to us through his perfect word. Someone said in the crowd to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere else to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. And they have neither a storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much of more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small of a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, I do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Redeemer Church, what do we believe about God's Word? And the flowers fall, 
but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together once again. Father, we do bow before you now because we need your life-giving power that is found in your word. So help us to hear this truth with hearts of humility, with souls of repentance, that we might obey you fully in light of it. Help me to preach with sincerity and clarity, with courage and conviction, as you have commanded me to do so. Help us to remember that this evening our souls might be required of us. So help me to preach as a dying man unto dying people. Help us to hear, even as dying people not promised to hear yet another sermon. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Or you may be seated. It was about 10 years ago that the late Jerry Bridges, a very well-known author in the evangelical Christian world, published a book that was titled, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. And here's what he wrote in the preface. The motivation for this book stems from a growing conviction that those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined, even respectable sins. And it's a truth that's quite relevant to our text this morning because I hope you notice as we read the passage, Jesus means to topple a few cherished sins within even our culture today, the idolatry of wealth and the indulging of worry. Uh, You don't need to be any sort of expert sociologist to know that if you look out on our DFW metroplex in the Western American world in which we live in, in a broader context, that these matters of indulging worry, of idolizing wealth, are very much a genuine threat even to evangelical Christians, to gospel-preaching churches, and Christ means to confront us on those very sins that we too often tolerate. And so if you wanted to summarize the rather large portion of text that is before us this morning, you could do so by simply saying true disciples treasure the kingdom of Christ more than the world. It's a very simple, spiritual, yet significant statement, isn't it? True disciples treasure Christ's kingdom more than the world. Because kids, did you notice as we read the passage how often Jesus mentions the word life? Shows up about four times. Three times he mentions treasure. And he wants you to know this morning what to truly treasure in your life. Even warn you away from certain treasures that you might be attracted to in your life. And students, it's even a a wonderful passage for you to consider. Because few things seem to increase the older you get as a concern for money. Or increased anxiety, fear, doubt, and worry. And so it's two simple sections that we're going to look at this morning. First, we want to see Christ's call to treasure, treasure him. So treasure Christ instead of your wealth. And then secondly, his calls to treasure Christ amidst your worry. So he's wanting to confront us on matters of wealth and worry this morning, pointing us to the true treasure that's found in him and his kingdom. And it all begins with the question a certain man in a crowd asks in verse 13. Now, if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, what you need to know is the surrounding context of this passage finds Jesus, as he often does, uh, preaching with peculiar power towards religious people. 
Pharisees, scribes, lawyers, these religious elites in the early Jewish world. And two weeks ago, we saw him utter six different woes upon these religious people. That they were going to be judged for their hypocrisy. And it even continued last week as we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 12. And he warned the crowds and even his disciples once again of the leaven of the Pharisees. You'll notice in verse 1, which is hypocrisy. And it's a sin that God is going to judge. It's a sin that God is going to condemn. And so what's necessary for his people is to have no fear and repent of their sin, confessing Christ at the promise of the coming judgment. So these are, if you were listening to Jesus' teaching at that time, these would have been sober subjects of spirituality and salvation that he was addressing. And in the midst of all this, an interruption comes. Look at verse 13. This man says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And it's at this point that an old preacher in the 19th century commented, how many hearers of the gospel are just like this man? How many are incessantly planning and scheming about the things of time, even under the very sound of the things of eternity? Even the preaching of our Lord Jesus Christ did not arrest the attention of all his hearers. The minister of Christ in the present day must never be surprised to see worldliness and inattention in the midst of his congregation. And I tend to think that's probably true of this man interrupting Jesus' sermon. But I'll give him the due charity that I think we ought to owe him, that maybe he was just taking Jesus' previous words to its logical and some sense of an application to his unique personal interests. Because previously Jesus said that God had entrusted to him all judgment. And so he says, Jesus, I need you to judge something for me. I need my brother to split the inheritance with me. Seems to make some logical sense, doesn't it? But Jesus, as the judge, rules it out of order. Notice verse 14. Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Now this was something that would have broken with the ancient customs of the day, because ordinary rabbis would judge family disputes just like this. So he's coming, this man, to Jesus as a good teacher and a rabbi, asking him to do what ordinary rabbis would do. But children, you need to remember that Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. He did not come to settle matters of dispute related to possessions and property. He he came to bring people to God. You want me to divide the inheritance, Jesus says. Well, who made me a divider, more literally in the Greek? Who made me a divider for you? And how often it is, don't you know, that sometimes we might be requesting God to do something for us. Asking of Christ to intervene in our own life. And may not his response sometimes be, that's none of my business. Uh, I came to deal with much more significant and spiritual matters than these trivial worldly concerns that you may be presenting to me. So he's wanting to fix our focus. He's wanting to set our attention aright. Because notice what he says in verse 15. He said to them, so now he's broadened it out to the crowd, listening. He says to the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. So what's the danger this man interested in his inheritance is facing? It's breaking the 10th commandment. It's coveting. Now kids, do you know what it means to covet? Do you know what covetousness means? It just means being greedy for something someone else has. And this man is greedy 
for what he actually thinks is rightly his. And so seriousness, so serious is the sin of covetousness that Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 in the New Testament says, it is idolatry. And so weighty is the danger that this man is facing and we face in our own covetous desires that Jesus gives a double warning, a double protection against the sin, doesn't he? Take heed, he says, first of all, in verse 15, and be on your guard. Now, when the Titanic set sail in 1912, there were many different and important roles on that ship, jobs to fulfill, uh, one of which was fulfilled by a man I'm sure you've never heard of named Frederick Fleet. He was the ship's lookout man. It was his job when he was on the watch to unfailingly look out at the horizon and identify anything that was along the way that presented danger to the ship. And so on that fateful night, when it of course eventually sank, he was the first one that noticed the iceberg on the horizon and sounded the bell and told the captain on the bridge that danger was on the way. And in the same way, Jesus is telling us, he's telling the crowd, to be on the watch unflinchingly against the danger of coveting. And notice what he says. He gives a reason why we need to be such, so earnest in our watching. He says, for, notice the end of verse 15, One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And I suppose if you're in here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, he wouldn't say he's your savior, that you probably have some sense of an idea of what defines meaning and joy in life for you. And even if you wanted to broaden out Jesus' words at the end of verse 15, consider some common meanings of life that are in our culture today, as people think their life consists of well-behaved children. Their life consists of that dream home they've finally been able to purchase. Their life consists of the praise of men. Their life consists of recognition in the workplace. And Jesus says, your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, so watch against coveting, watch against idolatry of wealth. So he's got a question from the man. He gives him an exhortation, and now to further pound the point home, he gives an illustration. It's a parable that ensues, you'll see in verse 16 through 20. And you can summarize this parable pretty quickly. It's the parable we often call the parable of the rich fool. You have Jesus saying, consider this story. You have a rich man, so he's a farmer, likely, and he's had a bumper crop one year. So he's got a great amount of wealth that he has just been able to accrue to himself through the great harvest that he has received. And he thinks to himself, what am I going to do with all this wealth? What am I going to do with all these crops? You know what I should do is I should tear down my little barns and erect bigger barns in order to store them. And then everything's going to be all right. And if you wanted to know just how selfish this man is in Jesus' illustration. If you just look at verses 17 and 18 and 19 and scan through those verses, you'll see some 11 different times that he either says I or my when thinking about what he's going to do with his wealth. And he caps it all off, notice in verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So he's speaking to his soul at that point. 
saying it's safe, it's secure, it's, it's satisfied. Notice, in wealth. But there is a play on words, isn't there? He says, to my soul, soul, just take it easy in this enjoyable life that I've finally been able to achieve. And what does Jesus say that God will say at the last day, even before that last day? Notice verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, children, when you think of a fool, I bet you think of someone who's just silly. Maybe someone who's just a little bit goofy. But when the Bible talks about fools, it means something much more dangerous. Something who's, someone who's so hardened in their sin, someone who's so blinded by their transgressions that they will be blinded and led into eternal judgment and punishment. Fool, what are you going to do with all that wealth tonight? Because God is going to require your soul. This is what Jesus said. And I suppose it's, it's possible, isn't it, that some of you might sit in here this morning and are tempted to such foolishness, to think your life does indeed consist in the abundance of possessions. And what you need to know in a way that our culture so often needs to hear is that Jesus is unrelenting against that foolishness. He means to remind you earnestly, forcefully, warningly, that accruing one's wealth unto himself or herself, to live for possessions, to live with a covetous heart, uh, will mean judgment forever, eternal punishment in the presence of God's wrath. And so what's the hope that such fools can have? Well, the hope is in what Jesus did for us. Because remember that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. All the riches of eternity were His. And the good news, this gospel that we proclaim, is not that he kept those things for himself. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, robbed, kept to himself. But he took on the form of a servant and humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And as that death on the cross by which we can now celebrate, he who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. He who had everything became nothing so that we might receive the kingdom. And it's a reception of the kingdom, it's a reception of those eternal riches that he only requires that you turn from your sin and trust in him. We will see later on in this passage, there's nothing you can do to earn your way into the kingdom, but you receive it faithfully, joyfully, gladly, and even in the midst of receiving Christ Jesus, he's going to be able now by his spirit to release you from the grip of greed that does afflict so many. It's the call to treasure Christ instead of your wealth. And like a good preacher, he takes the question, he gives an exhortation, provides an illustration, and he closes notices in verse 21 with application. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, one thing I hope you've seen if you've read through the Gospels is how black and white Jesus is in his ethical instruction. Oh, we've talked about that recently. There's no, no, there's no neutrality uh, towards Christ. You are either on the path of destruction or on the path of salvation. You are either in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of Christ. And even in this point, he's saying you either give your money to God or you keep it for yourself. There is no middle road when it comes to the use of your wealth and the treasuring up of resources that God has committed 
to you. And so what he now does is turn his attention from wealth, broadly speaking, to this crowd, and makes it even more pointed and personal to his disciples, now speaking of worry. And the call is to treasure Christ amidst your worry. If you've ever seen the Disney movie before, or the old version of it at least, Jungle Book, you might remember some some songs that are relatively famous in our culture from uh, that movie, one of which is Baloo singing forth the bare necessities and the need to see them so that you might not have any worry or strife. And what Jesus is doing right at the outset of now speaking directly to his disciples is reminding them of what truly are the bare necessities of life on this earth. And it might be quite striking to realize what he says are the bare essentials. Look at verse 22 and 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Now if you go home later today and read through 1 Timothy chapter 6, you'll find Paul there confronting false teachers in their greed, thinking they can use the ministry for dishonest gain. And Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he says, I think it's verse 8. It sounds so much like Luke chapter 12. For you have brought nothing into this world. You can take nothing out of it. So if you have food, if you have clothing, with these you will be content. Do you understand what the New Testament says about the bare necessities of life on this earth? Food and clothing. Isn't it true that if we went home today and said, hey, here are the the simple essentials that I need or or my family needs, our list within a few seconds would be much longer than just two things. So Christ confronts us often, doesn't he, on our misguided notions of what it means to live even as his disciples, as his kingdom citizens here on this earth. He understands that the, the nature of life is one in which we are prone to worry about so many things that his disciples are prone to worry amidst their calling in Christ. And so what he does in the next few verses is give four different considerations to his disciples of why they shouldn't worry, why they shouldn't live a life full of anxiety. First he says, consider how God feeds the ravens. So you can just kind of scan your eyes through verse 24. God feeds these ravens who aren't working for it, who aren't sowing for it, who aren't reaping for it. And it would have been a rather striking emphasis in that day, in that time, because ravens at that time in Jewish culture, they were, they were detestable scavengers. Even the Old Testament books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy call ravens an abomination. And he says, and God feeds them. And the conclusion is logical, isn't it? Look at the end of verse 24 of how much more value are you than the birds? Why worry about what you will eat? God feeds the ravens. So consider how God feeds the ravens. Secondly, he says, consider the futility of anxiety. Look at verse 25 and 26. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Well, just stop there. There's some debate among the commentators with the Greek text because span of life can actually refer to 60 minutes added on to your life or it can also refer to 18 inches increased of your height. 
And whatever it actually means, I think the ESV's translation is right here. But Jesus' point is, your worry won't increase 60 minutes to your life. Your worry won't increase 18 inches to your height. And notice what he stunningly says in verse 26 as he continues, if then you are not able to do as small of a thing as this. That does not seem very small to me. Probably doesn't to you. Increasing your height 18 inches. Increasing your life by 60 minutes. And Jesus says in God's hands, these are just small, little things. If you can't even do this, notice how verse 26 continues, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the futility of anxiety. Thirdly, consider how the Father clothes the flowers. He mentions grass. You'll notice in verse 27 and 28, grass and lilies, that they're not doing anything to clothe themselves. And amazingly, he says these lilies are clothed in even more splendor and more beauty than King Solomon in the fullness of his glory. And even the grass that is Gone tomorrow, it's here today, and gone tomorrow, it's still clothed, no less. And the conclusion is just the same as it was with the ravens. You see the end of verse 28. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Consider how he feeds the ravens. Consider the futility of anxiety. Consider how he clothes the flowers. And then fourthly, consider the Father's knowledge. Look at verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Uh, the word picture in the Greek here for worried is a ship being tossed to and fro at the sea. And I imagine that many of you have an understanding of that feeling, that, that, that kind of experience in your life before Christ, that you move from comfort to fear, from assurance to anxiety, from confidence to doubt in the blink of an eye. And Jesus says to harbor, to indulge, to cultivate such worry is to be nothing less than a ship tossed at the spiritual sea, moving from side to side. And the means that by which he wants to encourage us this morning is verse 30. Notice what he somewhat stunningly says. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Uh, what is maybe striking for us to hear this morning is Jesus has just said, worry is the way of the world. Anxiety is the affliction of the nations. Yet faith is the path of God's family. So what worries, what anxieties are you sitting in here with this morning? You can broaden it out, can't we? We ought to in our own examination beyond just matters of food and clothing. What worries do you have? Even legitimate, good, spiritual and biblical concerns. Maybe a spouse or a loved one has recently passed away and you're wondering about physical and spiritual provision in your life. Maybe it's wondering about when you're going to actually have a genuine, deep friendship with another brother and sister in Christ. Maybe it's your worry over when you're finally going to have the strength to say no to that secret sin. Maybe it's wanting to increase in Scripture and you seem to not have any time to meditate and memorize its truth. Well, Jesus says, don't worry about such things. Have not anxiety about such things because your Father knows you need them. And what we're going to see is he's going to give them to you. So treasure Christ instead of your wealth. Treasure Christ amidst your worry. This is the ordinary way that his disciples are to live, treasuring Christ's kingdom 
more than the world. It was 52 weeks ago to the day that I was in Dundee, Scotland, doing some research for some work I was doing on a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor by the name of Robert Murray McShane, and I spent that Lord's Day morning in Dundee at St. Peter's Chapel there in Dundee where Robert Murray McShane had a very famous ministry in the late 1830s and early 1840s. And after the service was over, I just walked through the city. It was, a, it was just an ideal afternoon in Scotland, and I was just struck with the beauty and the history of the city sometimes wandering up pathways to McShane's home, wondering what it must have been like almost 200 years ago. In a real sense, it was something that I was treasuring, uh, that experience there, this man that I've so, so valued in my life. And I was there alone. My kids and wife were home here in the States. And so as you are probably prone to do on such a trip like that, you want to capture it for your loved ones. You know, I took out my phone and took some pictures of some important sites, even took different videos of, of what the streets would have looked like that McShane would have walked on, and I sent them home. It was a treasure that I wanted to capture in order to be able to explain, in order to be able to give illustration to what it's like. And in the remainder of our text, that's what Jesus essentially does with treasuring the kingdom. Because you might ask the question, as he even said in verse 21, what does it mean to be rich towards God? What does it exactly mean to treasure the kingdom. Well, he wants to capture it for you in our last four verses by giving you five commands. So five commands in four verses is how we're going to end, and I just want to summarize them under four simple statements. So what does it look like? How are we going to know that we are treasuring Christ instead of the world? Well, Jesus, first of all, corrects our priorities. He corrects our priorities. Look at verse 31. Instead, instead of worrying... Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So kids, what does it mean? What does it mean to seek his kingdom? Uh, do you go looking for it like a treasure that is lost, you know, with a flashlight and a, a treasure book, the Bible of sorts guiding you along the way? What does it look like for us as adults as we want to treasure the kingdom in our ordinary places of vocation? our ordinary callings in Christ. Well, just remember what we saw in the previous chapter, chapter 11 of Luke's gospel. Treasuring the kingdom, seeking the kingdom, means first and foremost praying for it to come, as he told us in the Lord's Prayer. Even if you span out a little bit in Luke's gospel and even take all of the other gospels into account, you'll find Jesus very often proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so what should we do? How should we seek it? He says, repent and believe. A life of increasing faith and repentance is an ordinary way that we seek his kingdom. God says in Romans chapter 14, the kingdom does not exist in eating and drinking, but in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So a life that's cultivating the fruits of the Spirit is an ordinary way in which we seek his kingdom. He means to correct our priorities away from wealth, away from worry, and into the central importance of his kingdom. But he also means to comfort us with God's grace. Look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I tend to think if ordinary Christians and followers of Christ begin to put these things into practice, a life free from the cares and concerns of wealth, the almost unflinching anxieties that so often strike us, 
one of the most common consequences we will have is fear. If we live a life free of worldly concerns, the ordinary way Satan's going to want to tempt us to sin is to just be scared of, well, what are we going to do now? What are the disciples there as soon to be the 12 apostles or 11 apostles to send Christ's message to the ends of the earth? What are they going to do when they are poor, when they have no homes, many of them, when they go about on their missionary journeys? He says, fear not. He reminds them that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of his family. You are one of the little lambs in his sheepfold. And do you see the grace of God at the end of verse 32? It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's not a stingy ruler. He's not a frugal father. He delights. His sovereign grace is to give you the kingdom. So if you aren't a Christian, you need to hear once again that this is not a kingdom that you can force your way into. You can't go buy a ticket at the kingdom stall in order to advance into Christ's kingdom. But the Father can grant it to you and delights to graciously give it to you if you would simply cling to Christ alone as your Savior. So he wants to correct our priorities. He wants to comfort us with God's grace. And he wants to command us, thirdly, to radical generosity. Look at verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. The great theologian Augustine was once commenting on the parable of the rich fool and he said the man's central problem was that he had forgotten that the bellies of the poor are safer storehouses than his barns. And I think what he was meaning by saying that is you have to wisely take into account the teaching of Christ and the truth of Scripture to know where is the true safe savings account. Is it here on earth that will of course vanish in an instant? Even we often see that in depressions in our country when the market collapses. What was wealth stored up one day in a few hours is just gone, never to be seen again. And what Jesus says is, radical generosity means understanding that the true savings account we're called to in Jesus Christ is up in heaven. And the way that we store wealth in heaven is by giving it away here on earth to those who are in need. It's a command. Feel the force of that. It's a command to radical generosity. And then finally, it's a call to a heavenly heart. Look at verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Because we don't want to mistake what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, just because you're rich, therefore you're going to be earthly minded. Or just because you're poor, therefore you're going to be heavenly minded. He says, of course, ultimately it is a matter of your state before God. It's your heart's treasure that will dictate where your heart actually is. Is it a treasure entrusted into God in his home in the heavenlies? Or is it a treasure laid up in the banks of men here on earth? So it's called to treasure Christ. Treasure Christ instead of your worry. Treasure Christ instead of your wealth. To place your heart in his hands, knowing that the Father's good pleasure is to keep it safe and secure and to bring you into his kingdom. Because true disciples are those people who treasure Christ's kingdom and not the world. Let us pray together.
Our Father, we do praise you for your grace towards us in Jesus Christ. That he loves us enough to confront us on sins that we may often nurture and cultivate. Dare we say, even somewhat respect in our churches. Help us to be a people that increase in our treasuring of Christ and his kingdom. And let such treasuring overflow into our lives, the heart that is set on heaven, with the life lived in radical generosity, clinging to your grace alone. So help us this morning, we pray, to do those things by your spirit. I'll take my small words and multiply them by your power to do much more good than we could ever possibly imagine or think. And bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ, through it all, we pray in his name. Amen.